But I see that we do have the Justice uh, Edwin Cameron on the line. We managed to get a hold of him. That's wonderful news. And without any further delay, at 24 minutes past nine, let me say good evening to him. Justice Cameron, thank you for joining us this evening. And really, it's an honor speaking to you. And a great privilege always to be on 702 and on your show too. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, thank you. So, Justice, um, I mean, I'm, I was saying early on, just at the beginning of the show, about 20 years ago, um, I was busy reading judgments with your name on it uh, in law school. Um, sadly, I never went on to become a practicing attorney. I, I finished the degree, but never practiced as an attorney. Um, and I was lucky enough because I worked with the Human Rights Commission at the last at last year's uh, Mood Court Schools Mood Court competition. I, yeah. I saw you in person. I met you. Um, I mean, you're just the epitome of grace. You're just the epitome of of the great contribution that we've made that has been made in the lead up to where we are today. So, really, I much appreciate the chatting to you this evening. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for that very affirming introduction, Bashar. Thank you. But Justice, I mean, your your life didn't start off, you know, with a with a silver spoon. It wasn't easy for you. I was reading now. You lost your sis- sister tragically at the age of nine. Um, yes. You you spent much of your time in an orphanage in Queenstown. I mean, that that was a very difficult start for someone that actually ended up, uh, you know, getting to the highest echelons of of South African jurisprudence. You know, uh, I, I think what one takes from those elements of one's life are how they strengthen you and how they uh, help you understand our world a bit. Well, you, uh, you know, I grew up when whites, unlike you, were privileged and uh, there, there, there was apartheid. But I grew up poor. But my big breaks in life came because I was white. So there were lots of poor kids in South Africa, but only the, the, the white kids got the big breaks. I got to go to Pretoria Boys High, which was an outstanding government school, whites only. I got to go to Stellenbosch University, outstanding university, whites only. At the time I got the Rhodes Scholarship, uh, there had not been no black South Africans. The first black African South African was elected two years after me, Louisa Nongwa. So at the time I got the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, it was in effect a whites-only scholarship. So, uh, you know, and poverty, I think, teaches you important things. Mm. Uh, it's given me a, 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 a sense of the class dimension, not only race, uh, the disadvantage in South Africa is both class and race. Uh, there was an article on Ground Up this week. Uh, they don't mention the name, the, the word white or black, but it looks to me as though it's a informal settlement of white people only on the East Rand where they've turned very interestingly to uh, Mr. Intia Suleiman's Gift of the Givers because they need food, they need, uh, it's as elementary as that. So there's, there, there is the class dimension as well. And, and I think that growing up with racial privilege and with class disadvantage uh, really shaped my political consciousness. And then, of course, being gay, discovering to my uh, horror at the age of 14 that, that I've got to be the, one of these terrible things, queer sissies. Uh, and then affirming that as part of my identity as being a proudly gay man. Mm. And then, of course, uh, getting, becoming infected with HIV uh, while I was a human rights lawyer in the 1980s and surviving AIDS when 
many, 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 many tens of millions on our continent who didn't have access to ARVs uh, died in this epidemic. So uh, I really, talking to you tonight, it's a great privilege. I count myself inordinately fortunate. And that's what gets me up in the morning. It's, It's the sense that there's work for each of us to do. I mean, Justice, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, the, the uh, massive battle, the massive war that we waged against the AIDS pe- epide- epidemic in South Africa many years ago. And uh, it's still ongoing, but albeit in a different shape and form, with people being able to get the necessary treatment to prolong their lives, many people living productive and happy lives despite being HIV positive. But, you know, the one thing I'll never forget, I can't even remember when it was, because obviously a lot of things have happened over the last couple of decades. But I'll never forget you uh, giving an address where you had admitted to the fact that obviously because of your legal career, uh, the income that you had at the time, you were able to in essence save your life by accessing the necessary drugs. And at that time, South Africa and many South Africans were actually losing their lives as a result of the HIV pandemic. Um, yeah. within South Africa. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the things that always humanized you. And, and let's be honest, in, in South Africa, and maybe it's needed to some extent, there's almost been a deifying of, of you know, any, any person that occupies the seat of judge, judge particularly uh, the, the constitutional court. But you've always humanized yeah. it somehow. You've always been accessible as well. What's your take on the accessibility of judges? And, and, and being seen as human and going through those struggles and being part of those struggles as well? I think with everything, well, it starts inside yourself. I, I think you've, 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 you've got to realize that you have the foibles and the failures and the limitations of any human being. And if you go into the work of judging with that, uh, I think it's, it's the right mindset but uh, let me turn your question on the head, on its head, because it's really an interesting question. To some extent, you've got to be inaccessible as a judge. Uh, I mean, I, I I know of very few instances over the last three. I know of one instance that I eventually write about. I don't have the judge's permission to write about it. Of where, where a political player actually called the judge in a crucial uh, uh, case and said, uh, "We hope you're going to do the right thing for us." And uh, that political player didn't get what he or she wanted. But for the rest, judges are protected by their relative isolation. They're protected by the fact that they have income security. They have position security. So I'm turning your question a bit on its head, Gershwell, to say uh, that is the way it should be. Uh, I'm now, uh, as you know, I'm in a very, very different job. I'm inspecting judge of prisons since the 1st of January. Yes. And uh, there's, there's no distance or, or uh, elevation or, uh, you know, isolation there. It's, it's a very tough hands-on job uh, and, and a very important one for, for everyone involved in our correctional system. I hear you. And I think that's an important one. I actually want to talk about your, the, the current um, position that you're occupying as being the inspecting judge of the Judicial Inspectorate for Correctional Services, um, mm. uh, you know, in brief known as JIX. That's the other capacity in which we will obviously encounter each other every now and again, um, you know, yes. in, my, in my other work. But let, let's talk Excellent. a little more about your, you know, the, especially your activism 
you know, in and around LGBTI and GNC rights. Yes. Um, you know, it, it is such an important pillar of the work that you have done. And I think at the time that you came out and admitted openly to being openly gay, number one. Number two, um, at the time also, you know, having to deal with being HIV positive. I mean, it was such an important statement that you made at that point, exposing, for lack of a better term, so much of yourself, considering uh, the battle that we were fighting uh, in this country, not only around HIV and AIDS, but specifically around the rights of lesbian, gay, trans, intersex, and and all other gender non-conforming persons. Exactly. And of course, I did it from a position of privilege. And what triggered my eventual public statement about living with HIV was, A, on the one hand, that I'd started on antiretrovirals in November 1997. I knew that my life had been saved from a position of, of facing certain death. I knew mm. that uh, I was going to survive. And then secondly, Gugu Lamini in Durban, in Komashu, she speaks out on a Zulu language radio station and three weeks later, she's uh, beaten and stoned and, and stabbed to death. And here I am. I was living in Brixton at the time behind a palisade fence. I'd drive into the high court every day. I'd been a high court judge for three or four years. I'm getting a judicial salary. So I could do those things from a position of protection and privilege when a lot of other people couldn't. And I thought if Google can speak out about living with HIV, I can't remain silent. And that, but of course, people like Simon Cordy and Zaki Ahmed, just a few months before me, had also spoken out. Zaki started the treatment action campaign. Mm. Simon died of AIDS in, in December 1998. And I attribute the fact that we have sexual orientation in our, con- in our constitution to Simon. So we'd be talking again here. Uh, we're talking about a balance between vulnerability and privilege and, and, and the power that privilege gives you. And really, we all, as humans, uh, it's a Sunday evening, so we can get a bit philosophical, can't we, well. No, of course, definitely. We're all vulnerable. We are all vulnerable to fears. And, and, and one of the things that we don't talk about a lot in South Africa is shame. Uh, as, a, as a young man who realized that I was gay, I experienced incredible shame about it until I said, no, this is a part of me. If, if you, if you uh, are a person of faith, a person of reason, God, you'd say, God made me this way. No LGBTI person in the world chooses to be this. It's the way you are. Mm-hmm. And then I experienced the second wave of shame as living with HIV. It was worse. Uh, I kept quiet about my HIV for 11 or 12 years. And I speak about those things because they're still operative in our country. And I gave a TED talk last year, which, which can be accessed on the web, in which I speak as a gay man about the internalization of, race, of uh, sexual orientation shame, as someone living with HIV, about the fact that we internalize the stigma of HIV. And then I can't talk as a white person about the internalization of racial shame how wrongly uh, you might, as a black person, uh, internalize the terrible insults and subordinations of race. But Steve Biko did. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, white should learn, 
and I, I, I agree whites have got uh, uh, work to do, but he said black people have also got the work to do. They must cast off this internalized shame. He called it an inferiority complex. He said they should stop being ashamed. So I quote Steve Biko, because I, I have no title to speak as a white person about racial shame. But I think that those things, uh, and that's why I said we being philosophical on a Sunday evening, because they go very deep. And if, if you have a position of power, uh, you, you, it, it, it can do a lot of good if you're able to speak about your sexual orientation, speak about your HIV status, speak about uh, access to antiretroviral drugs. So I, I was privileged to be able to do all of that, and, 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 and I, felt, I felt impelled to do that. I mean, uh, you know, Justice, there's so many, so many dimensions to you. It just feels that there's just not enough time to cover everything. I mean, the, let, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. You're the inspecting judge of the Judicial Inspectorate for Correctional Services, as I mentioned earlier on. What is your role in that space? What is it that you've become alive to? You know, Nelson Mandela told us, after all, that you measure a society by how it treats its prisoners and its animals, isn't it? And, and yes. you know, <laughs> having worked in the space for a number of years, whether I was volunteering at, the, at Legal Aid South Africa mm-hmm. while I was still studying mm-hmm. and seeing what prison mm-hmm. conditions are like, whether it be mm-hmm. the work that I do now, Let's be honest. Um, we, we don't treat our prisoners all that well, do we? You know, we've got a great statute, like with so much else in our country. We've got great policies. We've had great workshops, seminars, policy, think tanks. And it ended up in 1998 in a terrific statute, the Correctional Services Act, which speaks about human dignity in, in, in our prisons. It speaks about rehabilitation and being correctional facilities, not, not prisons or jails. But the reality, like with so much else in our country, is far from that. And uh, especially with the waiting trial prisoners, there's terrible overcrowding. We've managed to decongest to some extent, but mm. there's still terrible overcrowding. I went with the National Commissioner uh, in May, uh, two months ago, to the Johannesburg prison, popularly known as Sun City. And we saw cells there made for 22 people with 70-plus people crammed in. And uh, the prison officials acknowledged openly that with the extra 10% crammed in because of COVID arrests, I mean, to me, and we can go, go back to AIDS there, and I'll, I'll just quickly put in square brackets here, Gershwell, mm-hmm. that we, we learned from AIDS and HIV doesn't help to use the big stick, to use the coercive approach, to use the criminal law. And we forgot that lesson when COVID came. And to arrest 100,000 people on COVID infractions, I think was completely the wrong way to go about it. Mm, but the mm. point I'm making at the end of the square bracket is that the Sun City in Joburg, the remand section got 10% even more overcrowded. So uh, you're right, uh, to get back to your question, uh, we, they are not the rehabilitative places where, that they should be. The conditions are not what they should be. And can I just say this, uh, well, it's imp- important for me to say this. I don't blame the correctional personnel. 
I don't blame them because it is me and you, it is the mm. media and the lawyers and the judges and the parliamentarians and the politicians. We have created this carceral system and the moral responsibility lies with us, not with the people that we say. Send all these people. Let me give you an example, Gershwell. We had 400 people serving sentences of life imprisonment in 1994. Mm-hmm. We've now got 16,000 plus. Mm. And I, I absolutely say, and your listeners will challenge me, I welcome challenge. There are people who have to be locked away for a very long time. Some of them even without prospect of release, unfortunately, but those are a very small number of cases. In most cases, to take a tiny number of racists and a tiny number of of robbers or murderers and send them to jail for life for very long periods is pointless in terms of retribution, pointless in terms of of stopping crime. And I say that with, with a real sense of of my own experience of the criminal courts and of having uh, been involved in the jail system even before I became inspecting judge. So uh, all of that just to say that, that, that the system is far from what it should be. And thank you very much for, 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 for raising that. We, we must take responsibility for gender-based violence, for our communities. Every person who commits a robbery or murder goes back to a partner or a family or a mother or a mm, father mm. or cousins or uh, a family. And uh, that, that, that's the complexity of, of, of when we try to alienate the criminal from our consciousness, we alienating parts of ourselves. Well, certainly. Um, and this is my final one because it segues immediately for me, uh, Justice, into such an important question. And that is around rights and how as South Africans we view rights, because it's not just the rights of, you know, uh, exceptionally marginalized people like people who find themselves in prison. But I tend to find, I mean, you and I spoke about LGBTI and GNC rights. We spoke about the rights of persons yes. living with HIV uh, which yes. broadly then translates into health rights and so on and so forth. But beyond Correct. that, you know, the thing is we, we gift it with the greatest constitution in the world. I'll, I'll keep on saying that till the day I die. But yes. sadly enough, I think that to a large extent as South Africans, we at odds with that particular constitution. It's almost as if we don't appreciate it sufficiently. What do we do to change the discourse in me, you and everyone else actually respecting the rights of others, and more specifically, accepting people for who they are? Well, we, we can start by realizing that the Constitution is something that we don't want to fling away. I know they're constitutional skeptics. Some of your listeners listening right now uh, will say, well, Mandela sold us down the river. It was a, a bad compromise. I think the Constitution is a terrific start, but it's only a start. So we've got to start to answer your question, Rochelle, by taking it seriously. And when it says human dignity, when it says equality between white and black and male and female and gay and straight and old and young, we've got to take it seriously. So 26 years after we became a constitutional democracy, we haven't done enough. We've certainly done a lot. I'm not one of those who say that democracy has delivered nothing. That's completely untrue. We have a functioning democracy with a vibrant media. Your radio station is one example. 
we have a functioning democracy with with uh, with electrifying opposition politics sometimes, in other words. Mm. And I'm proud of that because uh, we're an example not just to Africa, but to Eastern Europe, to to uh, South Asia, to China. We're, we, 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 when, when we talk about our freedoms, democratic freedoms in South Africa, two-thirds of the world don't have them. But the big test of our constitution, and this is where I'll end because you've, you've been a, a, a patient and, and, and permissive <laughs> host, Gushwell. Thank you. This is where I'll end. The big test is what do we do about uh, substantive inequality? Are we going to offer every person in this country, including cross-border migrants, and I include them sure. very specifically, are we going to offer them minimum conditions of life that allow them to pursue their life goals uh, in, 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 in circumstances of dignity? That's the big test. Justice uh, Edwin Cameron, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. All the best to you, and uh, may you continue to be a shining light in this country. Thank you so much, and a great pleasure to talk. Good night. Good night. That was uh, Justice Edwin Cameron.